CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to ETF Edge, the podcast. If you're looking to learn the latest insights on all things exchange-traded funds, you're in the right place. Every week, we're bringing you compelling interviews, thoughtful market analysis, and breaking down what it all means for investors. I'm your host, Bob Pisani. So let's get into it. Today on the show, we discuss what recent flows are telling us about the top trends in the ETF space and why the winners just seem to keep on winning. The NASDAQ 100 just hit $100 billion in assets something only four other ETFs have ever done. So here's my conversation with Kevin O'Leary, Shark Tank co-host and O'Shares chairman, as well as Matt Bartolini, head of Spider America's research at State Street Global Advisors. To a lot of people over the weekend, I get these emails, I call them four exclamation point emails, people who are baffled and a little bit angry about the rally in the markets, only, what, 12% from the S&P highs at a time when we're near depression levels uh, on the economic data. Can you just help square this for us? L- let me just take this whole thing up uh, with you, Matt. I mean, you're a big watcher here. I wanted to talk about ETF flows recently. But what I've been watching here is uh, I think two trends are really interesting in what's going on with ETFs, and it may be related to coronavirus. The first thing that we've been seeing is more ETF closures than openings this year. I don't remember when that's ever happened. Some of these are these leverage and inverse ETFs that are closing because of uh, uh, unusual activity that's going on there. But also I noticed we're still getting money coming in. There's still overall inflows. Dollar amounts are still positive. But most of the money is still going to those mega cap S&P 500 funds, including your your own fund, the S&P index fund, the IVV, uh, that we're getting in, inflows there. AGG, the biggest bond uh uh, fund uh, w- that you run as well, iShares uh, Bond Fund, uh, still getting inflows. What do you make of these flows and, and the closures? And do you think some of this is, might be related to the uh, the coronavirus and how it's impacted ETF investing? Yeah, I mean, as far as closures versus launches, I think it's more about uh, openings have slowed. Uh, if you're looking to start to launch a product say sometime mid-February, it was becoming very hard. And then in March, it became nearly impossible given two aspects. Uh, seed capital was more difficult to come by given the constraints on balance sheets, both from institutions and banks. Secondarily, mobilizing the team to go and have discussions with investors about a new product during a pandemic is extremely difficult, but also unlikely to yield any results given what we we're dealing with. Everyone was working from home. And you're really more concerned about how to actually get through your day than maybe thinking about a new investment strategy. So for a lot of firms, the decision was to postpone. So I'd expect actually a ramp-up of launches uh, that are sitting on the shelf uh, that will come out in the second half of the year. Hopefully, as those two variables I discussed earlier change as our society begins to reopen and get back to something close to normal. Closures are not a surprise. I mean, if you're planning on closing a poor-performing fund before this, the events over the last few months made it extremely easier, and it became just an operational experience. Uh, with respect to fund flows, yeah. every major asset class category monitored has had inflows in April, which to me is just a sign of steadfast usage of ETFs and the desire by investors to allocate capital across a variety of asset classes so as not to miss out on any gains as the global capital markets rallied. But is that really what's going on, Matt? I, I mean, it seems to me like the money flows are going into the biggest cap 
names, basically S&P 500 funds like yours, IVV, Vanguard Total Stock still getting big inflows, Triple Q still getting uh, inflows. That's where most of the money is going. Every, if, if you look at there, there's like 15 funds that had the vast majority of the, of the inflows. Investors still seem to be, my point is, they're still buying in to the idea of, of indexing as, as the way to go. And so the, the bigger ones are getting bigger and bigger, and the, the, the smaller ones still aren't really partaking in any bigger part of the yeah. pie. Yeah, I mean, the bigger funds, they're more liquid, right? So SPY, our S&P 500 ETF, they have garnered a significant amount of assets during this pandemic as it started in February. Investors sought out liquid vehicles to allocate capital. But even in April last month, you know, while some broad data products did have inflows, I would actually say, you know, I would argue that investors actually being more selective and picking their spots on how to buy back this rally because we saw $15 billion of inflows into sector ETFs in April with basically healthcare and tech, so XLV, XLK, those right. funds having the most flows on record in a given month because investors were indiscriminately picking out areas of the market that would perform best during a period of a sluggish earnings. Earnings growth, but also economic growth, uh, where those firms' products and services are likely to be sought after. Yeah. Uh, speaking of picking your spots, I continue to watch in amazements the gold funds, including yours, the, the, the uh, Spider Gold shares, uh, IAU there is the symbol there, as well as GLD, your competitor. The money just keeps going into these funds. What's What I find interesting is gold for investment purposes. I want to own gold uh, and I want to have an ETF, you know, keeping it in a vault somewhere. Gold for investment purposes is way up. And yet, Gold demand for jewelry in India and China is way down. The World Gold Council acknowledged that. So it's kind of strange. You got you got the doom and gloom crowd out there saying, OK, I want to hold gold as a, you know, uh, as a bulwark against uncertain times. But jewelry demand, which is the other really major part of this whole equation, is 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 way down. Can you square that for us, too? Yeah, so, I mean, our product, GLD, uh, had significant inflows as well as its sister fund, GLDM. Uh, but the broader category had $7 billion of inflows in April. And that's really large. And I think it's worth pointing out that gold ETF AUM as a share of global ETF assets is still well below its peak of 90%. So there's been strong investment demand as a result of a supportive macro environment, given that real interest rates are low, uh, extremely low, and potentially negative based on what variable you're looking at. But also macro risk is high. Now, how do you sort of you know correlate that with the demand from jewelry? It has obviously waned. Uh, it's, it's unclear whether jewelry demand lost during COVID is lost or simply delayed to the end of 2020. Uh, if jewelry weakness persists in the longer term as opposed to a short shock, you know, that may weigh on gold over the long run. However, that's not our base case outlook. Uh, the macro forces at play, as discussed earlier, are still supportive for gold. And I think, broadly speaking, look at historically, investment demand has somewhat outweigh jewelry demand as a sort of a driver of price, just given the macro forces at play. Yeah. And uh, sorry, I mixed that up there. GLD, obviously, is your fund uh, and IAU, uh, the other one there. Sorry, I mixed that up there. Uh, Kevin, you think that the market is correctly looking ahead to uh, reopening and do better days ahead? Well, institutional demand for equities is unprecedented, given there's very other, very few choices. The, the average bogey of a, take a CalPERS, they've already gone public this year saying their bogey 7%. Sovereign funds in Dubai or Riyadh, 6%. So if you think about how you're going to do that, your fixed income option of government bonds in the U.S. used to be something you'd even consider. 
those, that's not longer, no longer an option at, at 60 to 70 basis points for a 10-year. That's not really going to be very useful. And so if you could find a company, and certainly there's many now that are yielding 25 to 3.5% div yield, large cap liquid securities, you know, that's a very attractive place to park money for the next 24 months. And you're seeing a tremendous demand for it across the board. It's not the retail investor that's driving this market. It's institutional. I speak to them every day. And they're saying, what other choice do I have if my bogey over the next 12 months is 6%? There is no other choice, Bob. It's that easy. Yeah. You know, the other thing that I've noticed, I want to talk about one of your, your funds. I've noticed these big inflows into the mega cap funds here, Vanguard, mega cap growth, um, some of these other ones uh, that are out there, S&P 500, one, the S&P 100 ETF. A lot of this seems to be the interest in big cap that I was talking with Matt about, but there's also seems to be a lot of interest just in buying into the internet stocks that are going to really uh, do well in this environment. Obviously, we've seen Amazon and Apple uh, and Facebook do well. You've got one, OGIG, one of the O shares, the global internet giant. I was just looking at the inflows the other day, quite phenomenal uh, in the last couple months. What, what do you think is going on with that? And tell us how that fund is doing. Well, what that fund does is realize that the fangs are not unique to our own domestic market. There are companies all around the world, over 50 of them, that are experiencing tremendous growth as a result of what this whole pandemic has done to global retail changes. I mean, people's propensity to buy online is not just domestic anymore. We went into this at 16.2% online sales pre-pandemic. I think we're coming out at probably 24. So OGIG is not market cap weighted. So, you know, the, the trouble with a lot of different indices is they're market cap weighted. So the fangs represent 40, 44%. But the fangs are not the fast growing internet stocks anymore. You can find all kinds of companies like Zoom, like DocuSign, like JD, all kinds globally, and that's what's captured inside of OGIG. It's up 21% year to date, Bob. It's our best performing uh, index, but it, it's captured the theme that I think is going to stay intact for the next three years. People are going to keep buying online, and these are the global internet giants encapsulated inside of OGIG and not market cap weighted. So you get lots of all of the stocks that are performing well, not just the fangs, which are included in OGIG, but they're not 44% of it. Yeah. Yeah, I, this is a debate that's been going on for many, many years. Sometimes you get lucky. Like if you look at the, look at the biotech stocks today, you, you see the, 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 the two biotech ETFs, IBB and XBI. One is market cap weighted. The other is basically equal weighted. And they're both at new highs, but that doesn't happen a lot. Usually, Equal weight or market cap weight does a little bit better. And we recently, market cap weighted in tech has done a lot better. So that's a very good point, Kevin. Thank you. Um, Matt, uh, there's a lot of bottom fishers out there. It never ceases to amaze me. We were talking last week about the inflows into jets. This is the uh, global airline ETF. It's essentially a basket of U.S. airlines. There are some international ones in there. But the inflows have been titanic in the last uh, few weeks. Inflows into XLE, which is the energy ETF. You think like you think people would realize now picking a bottom and this is a is a fool's game, and yet we're still seeing it. Uh, the the urge to pick a bottom uh, does not go away, and you can see it very clearly in the behavior of some of these ETFs recently. Yeah, I mean, as I always say, trying to pick a bottom in energy stocks requires a steel stomach, and we are seeing basically that play out right now. I mean, that's what the flow trends are telling us. Uh, in February and March, we saw strong inflows in energy sector ETFs, but those flows were from investors wanting to go short. 
short interest on XLE climbed to around 20% of its assets. But here's where the bottom calling comes in. Short interest has declined since then, and it is now just around 11%, but the inflows into energy sector ETFs haven't stopped. There's, there was about $1.1 billion in April, right as the sector rallied 30%. We are seeing some of the same trends within those airline and energy commodity ETFs you mentioned as well. Those strong flows alongside declining short interest point to bullish optimism on some of the more beaten-up spaces like energy. And as we said earlier, you know, you take those trends along with inflows in the sectors with strong earnings like healthcare and tech, and to me, it shows that investors are picking their spots and buying the rally. Yeah. Kevin, um, other than uh, Internet stocks, uh, I know OGIG is very involved in that. Is there anything else you're particularly enthusiastic about? Give us some guidance of what you're thinking is on, on, on let's look six, eight months down the road towards, towards Christmas. What's, what's the sectors that are going to outperform this year? Well, people that are trying to second guess the S&P 500 towards which companies are going to cut or reduce dividends. I mean, if you're an institution, and as we talked earlier, looking for a 6% bogey, you want at least 50% of that coming from the distribution of capital. So now quality really matters. Now you really care to cherry pick. And this is what I love about the actively managed ETS sector, which everybody poo-pooed only three years ago. Now it's actually doing its work very well because in the case of OUSA, the one I'm going to talk about that I own, that's 130 plus of the S&P, but the highest quality balance sheets, which generally speaking are higher and more unlikely to cut dividends. So if you're using OUSA as a dividend play, which many people are doing right now with north of 3% dividend yield, it's a very good place to hide in the weeds if you're trying to be an institution making 6%. This is a time to use actively managed ETFs that focus on things like quality if you're worried about companies that are going to fail or at least reduce dividend yields. And there's going to be plenty of them, Bob. You've been covering it now for weeks. And I think there are sectors that are going to come out of this much better, obviously, than others. Uh, virus stocks versus non-virus stocks. You know, I'm not loving Disney right now for obvious reasons, but there's lots of companies that have actually done much better inside of the S&P 500 that aren't as worried about the effects of long-term concern to the virus. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. Uh, it's hard picking the winners and losers. And that's uh, generally thematic stocks are a, a little bit faddish to me. But the concept of quality in this environment, strong balance sheet, unlikely to cut the dividends, that makes imminent sense. That's a that's perfectly rational uh, investment ideology. If you if you understand what's going on there. Thank you, Kevin. That's a good point. Um, another noticeable trend to me, Matt, is sort of into America and out of the rest of the world here. Uh, there have been outflows in the largest European ETFs recently and some of the large uh, emerging market ETFs. Um, is this like a permanent trend uh, out of foreign investments and in, more into the U U.S. in terms of flows? It's not so much a permanent trend, but it is more recent. Uh, we've seen those outflows pick up. Basically, non-U.S. equity-focused ETFs uh, lost about $19 billion over the last three months. Meanwhile, $57 billion has been deposited into U.S. targeted strategies, leading to a differential of $80 billion, which is extremely high and is one of the highest differentials we've seen in quite some time. And is really driven by the outflows into the non-U.S. equity, into out, out, of, out of the European-focused ETFs, uh, like you had mentioned, but also into some of the broad EFA strategies as well. And I think basically what investors are doing here, they're ostensibly following Warren Buffett's advice and just buying America. There's really no 
preference from investors to express a risk-on view overseas, given that the economic and fundamental foundations are not as strong as they are in the U.S. But, you know, weak performance, the constructive relative valuations of non-U.S. equity markets, and low levels of positioning, however, set up international to be a big contrarian call right now. But unfortunately, that was the same call for the last few years and has yet to pan out. I think if investors do want to sort of step into that market, you know, based upon the conversation we were just having with Kevin, you're just focusing on firms with higher quality balance sheets that do trade at inexpensive valuations, maybe worth a flyer, just because they might have some more fundamental rigor to withstand yeah. any, any degradation in earnings and economic growth. Yeah, it seems to me, Matt, what's going on here is we've got two of the oldest games in the book. Investors are bottom fishing. That's an old game. And let the winners run. Momentum playing, as Kevin noted, with the Internet names, which have been winners uh, for so long. Guys, thanks very much. Now it's time to round out the conversation with some in-depth analysis and perspective to help you better understand ETFs and put them in the context of today's markets. This is our Markets 102 portion of the podcast. Today we'll be discussing the growing dominance of ETFs and key mechanisms behind them. And this time I'll be joined by my producer, Kirsten Chang. Just a quick disclaimer, with many of us working from home these days, our audio may sound a little different as we're adopting to the times and have to record on a cell phone speaker. So please bear with us. CNBC producer Kirsten Chang here with Bob Bazzani. And Bob, I want to ask you more generally about the market share of ETFs, because a lot of people may not realize that for all the attention we devote to ETFs on a daily basis, there's still a very small percentage of the overall stock market. I believe it was something like 11% last year. Will we see that number go up? Yeah, uh, it's been going up. So uh, a lot of this depends on how you slice and dice the numbers, whether you deal with shares traded or dollar volume. But just look at it this way. There's about 2,300 ETFs in the United States, and they've got about $4 trillion in market value. That sounds like a lot of money, and it certainly is, but it's a tiny part of the equity in the bond market. Uh, the, the value of the U.S. equity market has been all over the place this year, but it's probably about $30 trillion right now, somewhere around there. So think about this. Um, and the value of the bond market is higher. Uh, again, it's been all over the place this year, but it's probably close to $50 trillion. So think about this. The equity market is $30 trillion. The bond market might be 50 somewhere around there. Uh, and the ETF market is $4 trillion. So that is not very big uh, compared to the total amount of stocks and bonds that are, that are out there. It's fairly tiny, but it's growing. Uh, more, a slightly different way to look at this is it's a more important part of the trading on a daily basis than it is the actual uh, market capitalization and market weight. So, for example, there's about, oh, I'd say two and a half, three billion shares that were traded on a daily basis in ETFs uh, in the first quarter, somewhere around there. We had very heavy volume in the first quarter. So I, I would bet that all equity trading is close to averaging 10 billion shares a day. So ETF trading may be a quarter of all equity trading in terms of shares traded. Dollar amount eh, might be even higher. So uh, the New York Stock Exchange reported that the average daily value of ETF transactions in the first quarter was $165 billion. I don't know what the average daily transactions of the stock market was, but it's, I would bet it would probably be close to $400 billion. You know, 165 divided by 400 billion, you know, that, that, you know you're getting in, into, you know, north of 30% of the dollar volume of trading. So my point is the actual amount of dollar value in ETFs is very small. 
but the, it's become a more important part of the trading activity because a lot of professional traders use ETFs on a daily basis to get uh, in and out of the market. Getting to the heart of how ETFs work, can you briefly explain that central mechanism behind buying and selling the process of creations and redemptions? Well, it, this is a little bit complicated, but it, simply put, you have a, a sponsor, you know, uh, an iShares uh, or a Vanguard, somebody like that, and they want to create and say a fund that mimics the S&P 500. They would have to go out and uh, create an initial fund with a certain amount of money initially, obviously, and buy the S&P 500 stocks underneath it. They would have a trustee that would hold those stocks, and then they would bring in authorized participants. They're, they're, they're APs, they're called, but they're essentially market makers. So if somebody wants to come by and say, I want to buy this S&P 500 fund, they can buy it. But if you get suddenly a lot of people and there's more people who want to buy it, more shares that are around than are available, the participants, the authorized participants, these market makers, are authorized to create new shares. Now, they don't create them out of nothing. They also have to, of course, the, the buying process of buying the underlying shares and you know putting them with the trust, but they have the power to create new shares and make them available. The other thing that happens, of course, is the authorized participants are, the, are, are, are people who can balance out any disparities between the underlying price of the, the stocks, uh, the net asset value, as it's called, uh, and what the actual ETF is trading for at that moment. And sometimes they get a little out of whack, and that's what these people do. There's an arbitrage possibility because obviously it's buy low, sell high, so you can buy, buy the underlying um, or sell the underlying and, and buy the ETF or sell the ETF to make everything uh, balance out. And that's one way the whole ETF business works. So the real key to the whole thing is the what's called the APs, these authorized participants that are able to create and redeem shares on demand. And it makes the whole business very flexible uh, and very dynamic. That's it for today. I'm Bob Pisani. Thank you for listening. And make sure you tune in next week. And in the meantime, you can tweet us your questions or topic ideas at ETF Edge CNBC. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.